Hello and welcome to American Chicana, Latina, Mexicana. What's the difference? Just where you're from. If you're from New Mexico, Texas, you probably call yourself Chicana or Latina. If you're from Florida or from the East Coast, you may call yourself Latina because you're probably of a different Latin descent. Um, and if you're on the West Coast, you may call yourself Hispanic or some other Latin base. Um, but we're all one people. And it doesn't matter if you're from Nicaragua or Honduras or Puerto Rico or Mexico. Soy Mexicana. Soy Latina, soy Chicana, soy Hispana. And it's important that we recognize that we are one. In America, there are too many stereotypes associated with women and men of Latin descent, and typically associated with some type of service, endeavor, or profession. And I think we need to talk about that. I think we need to talk about what is the true face of the Hispanic Mexican populations in the United States. Okay, I'm back. All right, so I'm talking a little bit about Latin people here in the United States. And, you know, when whenever you just think of, you know, Latin people, you probably think of, well, who are the Latin people you know, like on TV and things, right? And, and I always think, oh, uh, Jennifer Lopez, right? Um, well, what about, you know, uh, you know, some of the comedians out there like Fluffy, right? Um, and, uh, and you're probably thinking of like uh, Salma Hayek and Penelope Cruz and Antonio Bandera, some of those, you know, the Latin stars, right? But, but uh, really, who are the Latin people here in the U.S.? We're not just migrant workers. We're not just, you know, service workers. We don't all work at Mexican restaurants. We're not... Um, you know, we don't all work on farms. We don't all, uh, you know, work as janitors and maids and big buildings. And, um, you know, people of Latin descent, you know, Mexicanos and Chicanos here in America do everything. Man, we're doctors. We're lawyers. Um, me personally, I'm a grant writer, and I've worked in nonprofits for 20 years myself. Um, and so it's just... Uh, it's just interesting because when I did a search for a podcast specifically aimed at talking about, you know, Chicano, you know, Latina, Latino people and kind of things that are going on in the U.S. right now, I couldn't find any podcasts. And so I decided I'd make one. And so here I am. Da -da. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, you know, just, uh. Why not? There's a lot of us out there doing a lot of good work. And man, nobody's talking about it. I feel like we're the untold story in America. Right? You know, I was talking to my parents, you know, I think it was like last year. 
And it had never dawned on me that my mom and dad were in their 30s when the Civil Rights Act was put in place. And, you know, and I'd heard, you know, some of the racist stories. You know, my mom and dad are from Tucumcari, New Mexico, very racist little community uh, just outside of uh, the, just on the inside of the border of Texas, where New Mexico and Texas meet. And, uh, you know, and they told me some pretty crazy racist stuff that they had dealt with, you know, growing up. And, you know, and I thought, you know, I never hear anything TV, radio, news, podcasts, TED Talks. I never hear anything about the, you know, the Latin stories about racial discrimination. Every once in a while, you'll come across a, you know, a, a documentary on, uh, you know, on, um, you know, just different M Mexican characters, you know, um, and it, but you never really hear the story or the voice of Latin people in the in the U.S. Right? What did you know? Some of the things my parents, my parents, um, you know, told me a time that they had to sleep in their car because none of the white motel owners would allow them to rent a room for them and their children during the civil rights period. And I thought, man, you know, you hear all these African-American stories about racism and prejudice, but you don't ever hear them about the Latinos and how, what they had dealt with, especially those living, you know, in New Mexico or they're near Texas, right? And you hear a lot about the, you know, Latin people, you know, on the east, on each of, each of the coasts, right? You know, you know, the Cuban story from people down in Florida and on that end of the, you know, of the, of the uh, nation. And then you have the story of the, you know, people and, you know, the Chicanos there in California and, you know, the workers' rights and, you know, Julio Cesar Chavez, you know, all that. Right. But what stories do you know about those little rancheros down there in New Mexico and Texas? You know, there are people, you know, our raza being killed. For simply being Mexicanos, Chicanos, Latinos, right? It's an untold story. You don't see it all over. You don't see big movies about it. My goodness, I'm, you know, you'd probably name off, you know, 15 different, you know, slave and uh, um, and other civil rights types of movies, you know, with predominant African-American struggle. But I don't know a single one that talks of the struggle that, you know, Mexicanos and, you know, Chicanos went through during that period. And uh, there was definitely racism toward, you know, uh, us as a minority. And then, so it's just interesting to me. Um, and I think that's, I think that it's important that we talk about it. You know, the um, the other day, I was just kind of pondering the whole thing um, because you know, I, you know, I I listen to a lot of podcasts and I read a lot of different books about you know like fund development and things like that for nonprofits and and team and leadership and you know all this stuff and I recognize that there's little to no um, minority you know Latin people writing those books or who are the focus of those podcasts. 
And uh, I thought, wow, we're just kind of a silent majority, right? There's a ton of us here in the U.S., um, but I guess we're all at work. <laughs> you want to know why? Because it's instilled in us. That's our life. From the moment, you know, growing up as a little girl is always got to get, you got to grow up and you got to get a job. Got to pay your bills. Got to take care of your family. Got to take care of your kids. Right? I think that's kind of a big piece of our culture. Right? And when you're not working hard, you, you can play hard. You can have fun. You can go to the bailes and you can, you know, really have a good time and go to the rodeos and, you know, do a lot of uh, wonderful things or, you know, have big celebrations with your family with all the good food and everything. And, and it's a wonderful way to grow up because our parents, you know, they just made sure that we knew our culture, that we were raised with our traditions and that we knew who we were. But what does that mean in America as a population? We're simply the people that work. We're the people that nobody really knows what struggles we've gone through. The majority of uh, our stories reinforce stereotypes. I mentioned Jennifer Lopez. What about her movie Made in Manhattan? Yeah, The Maid. The Maid made it big because she got with a white guy. Sounds like a, a supposed to be a good movie. <laughs> My parents were raised me to work hard, get an education, and uh, get a profession and a career. Didn't raise me to marry a white man to take care of me. So it's interesting to see a Latina so excited to be in a movie like that. Um, but then you know, it's money. Hey. Props. Rasa's making the money. She's on TV, right? Um, anyhow, <clears throat> this is my first podcast because I have not seen any other podcasts for Latinas. And are even talking about, you know, what's going on with us as a population and who we are. We're kind of like this silent member of this very large population of people here in the U.S., but you don't hear our stories. So it's interesting. The other day I was listening to TED Talks. Like like I said, podcasts, TED Talks, you know, all these things I like to do. And, you know, I came across an interesting story about superheroes, which kind of never really been into, really never really cared about any of that kind of stuff. But this one story kind of got my attention. <clears throat> so it was a story of an author who is a queer Latina and she developed a Marvel character named America Chavez who is also a queer Latina who is powerful and strong, very strong. Um, I mean, she can punch holes into other dimensions and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. And I thought, wow. And so I did a little digging. I was like, how many 
Latina superheroes are there? None. None that I know of. None that I could really find. Storm. But Storm is black. I thought, well, that's awesome that, you know, that our black sisters have a superhero too, right? And now we do. America Chavez. And I thought, you know, that's pretty awesome that she's a lesbian too, because I think the LGBTQ population has been just, there's just so much prejudice against that population, just like the Mexicanos, you know, Ardasa, right? And I think that by pairing those two groups, that that was smart. And that that also brings to light, you know, a lot about who we are as a culture, right? I mean, I have a lot of cousins that are gay and lesbian and, you know, transgender and all that. And it, and, and growing up, you know, uh, Latin community, man, it's sure, you know, it sure frowned upon when I was growing up. And then as I got older, you know, you hear the abuelas talking about, oh, you know, so-and-so's um, uh, daughter, she's a lesbian, you know, and that's why she's always wearing, she's always dressing like a man, you know. Look at her in her pantalones and those botas she always wears and, you know, or, oh, so-and-so, um, oh, he's got a boyfriend. That's so-and-so's son. You know that? You you hear all those little stories and the little, you know, the abuelitas talking, right? But I never really, I never really noticed it when I was young, but as I got older, I thought, wow, you know, our culture really kind of, mar- you know, kind of, uh had a little uh, negativity toward that population as well. So I thought it was awesome to see this awesome character who's very powerful and beautiful and also a member of that community as well that rocks, right? Um, so, you know, I just, uh, I just think that we're in a different world here in the U.S. You know, I think that a lot of... Uh, racism toward Latin communities has really come to the surface with uh, President Donald Trump coming into office. I just cannot believe that's such a racist um, man. And, and, you know, the other thing I think about, too, is when you see all his rallies and everything, they're fighting to get the border wall and all that. I just thought, you know, in my head, I'm like, man, this sounds so much like, um, like the Chinese Exclusion Act. This sounds so much like, um, you know, the margin, you know, the exploitation of, you know, Native American populations and their reservations, like the Navajo Nation. You know, the U.S. has coal-burning power plants on Navajo Nation, yet the majority of the, pe- the people of that tribe don't even have electricity in their own homes or running water. You know, and, and I'm like, I wonder how many people really know that. You know, and I think, huh, that's the big U.S., you know, white man's, you know, right wing Republican, you know, uh, really just exploiting the resources of our native brothers and sisters. It's just horrible. Hmm. And then I think of 
some of the changes that are coming about in Washington. You know, I read stories about Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez, our sister who's a politician. Good job. <laughs> Go Raza, right? Um, I can't even imagine what she's going through in Washington. Here's one of our sisters, a Latina, in the largest white power structure in the world. Out there fighting for you and me. And it don't matter if you're Latina or, or Latino or not. She has the interest of the people at heart, which is, is big news because it's foreign. It's foreign to our political system. We send people to office who are a million and billionaires and think that they're going to give a shit about you and me. They're, shit, we're wrong, you know? Oh, and what the hell does it even matter anyway? Electoral college is bought and sold, right? They're the ones who chose the president. How the hell else does a retard like Donald Trump become president of the United States? One hell of a superpower. And here he is pushing his racism and prejudice and Nazi regime into our freaking country. Man, blows my mind. But it does bring to light how very racist he is toward our raza. Latinas, Latinos, Chicanos, Mexicanos. This side or that side of the wall, we're the same. We're one people. We're here to support them. They're there to support us. We're, we're family. And here comes this big orange white racist man, you know, wanting to put a wall up to exclude our people. You know, and he wants to blame drugs and he wants to blame all these other things. Well, I'm sorry, but drugs come from all over the damn place. They come by boat, by train, by airplane. And he thinks a multi-million dollar wall is going to really make an impact on drugs coming to the U.S.? Well, guess what, you pendejo gringo? It's coming from everywhere, not just Mexico. Better get your shit straight. So, anyway, that's my rant for today, okay? You know, I think next time I get on here, I want to talk a little bit about our history and about this whole era of civil rights and how there's no real information or movies or stories told about what our people went through. And guess what? We were just as freaking, we were... I mean, the racism and prejudice that our people felt in that era were as significant as our black brothers and sisters out there. But the story's not told. Maybe we should do that. Anyhow, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you for chiming in. And uh, maybe I'll bring some people in to talk about this stuff on my next uh, podcast. Bueno, have a great day. This is Zenobia Domitilia Garcia daughter of Daniel and Felonis Garcia from Chicken Carry, New Mexico, and a proud member of Latina freaking population here in the U.S. Have a great day. Okay, so I'm back. I haven't been on here in a while. Been too busy. But I thought I'd talk a little bit about working in a nonprofit. So 
I've worked in nonprofits for a long time, and what I have found to be a standard for all of them is that they're messy and that people have huge egos and that because of those huge egos, you're constantly having to overcome many things to try to meet standards that are pretty unrealistic and definitely not those of the people with high, you know, the major egos. Their work is usually crap and they think that they're the greatest thing on earth. So, but now I'm working for an organization that is very messy. They are a clinic and they have multiple programs for uh, for uh, indigenous or Native American people and and what I have found is that the leadership style there is horrible. The CEO just runs about and, and expects you to be a mind reader. You have an executive leadership team that believe that there are supervisors over everybody and are constantly jumping people and completely inappropriate, but believe they're the greatest thing on earth. Just horrible. There are days I wake up and literally lay in bed until the last second because I hate working for such horrible people. But then I have to think about who I'm actually working for. I'm actually working to serve indigenous people and provide them medical care. And if that means that I have to deal with the scum of the earth, I will every day no matter what. And so when you see somebody that works for a nonprofit, know that it is the passion that keeps them in the work. It's not the pay and it's certainly not the management because the management is usually unbelievably bad. And usually a lot of people who sit around patting their own backs when they're not the people that actually do the job and get the work done. So Today, I just wanted to talk about that. When you see somebody that works in a nonprofit, know the hell they're going through to help you. Because I've never seen leadership as bad as the place I'm working at right now. And I just, I can't even believe that these people function. Um, I don't know how they get in the door with the egos that they have either. I mean, it's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. That's it for today. Hello, Jack. It's been a busy while. Um, but today I want to talk about Latinos and how we're missing from the American narrative. Although our history in our country in the United States is pretty substantial. I was reading, um, you know, some of the moments in history that, you know, Hispanics were really at the forefront, but news stations and other networks, television networks really mitigated or completely, um, disregarded the Hispanic, uh, component of these narratives. Um, and it's it's really crazy. I 
was just looking at some like the uh, major events in this country that included, you know, Latino people. And for instance, there before Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the land uh, landmark case uh, to desegregate schools, that there was actually another case, and it was Mendez versus Westminster. And what happened was that uh, children of or students of Mexican heritage um, were seen to be inferior and they're uh, not allowed into white only public schools in California um, and so <laughs> which is ridiculous here, here is Hispanic people being marginalized because of the color of our skin just like Brown versus the Board of Education and so in the in the findings on Mendez versus Westminster Ministry, it was decided, the courts ruled in 1954, mind you, it was unconstitutional to segregate students of Mexican heritage. Um, and the plaintiffs, uh, Sylvia Mendez, sued after being turned away from whites only public school in California. And it was granted, and it was. And was, you know, it was desegregated and she was allowed to attend, but only particular for Hispanic students. They they didn't want to discuss the the other brown um, party who are of course are, are African and black brothers and sisters. And so not only that, but uh, Mendez versus Westminster was a key uh, set a key precedent that was used in Brown versus board versus the board of education in desegregating schools in America. And so <clears throat> we hear about Brown, uh, versus the board of education all the time. Have you ever once heard of Mendez versus uh, Westminster? It was the key precedent that helped to determine Brown versus the board of education. And that was conducted back in 1954. But because it's part of Latino history, it's somehow omitted from the American narrative, somehow never discussed where the the other brown meat, uh, apparently. And so the more that I the more that I look into it, the the more I just feel like we are a growing population of people in the United States and for our stories to be muffled to be completely forgotten and completely disregarded from what makes America great is mind-blowing to me I just don't understand it um and then I decide I decided to to kind of research and think about well who was doing this? Well of course it's the white majority. The white majority was doing this to not only, you know, Latinos, they were doing it to all people of color. And so it you know, I just think that that's pretty sad that when you think of this American narrative, it's white. If you look at movies that portray our history, the majority of the actors in those films are white, although the majority of people in our country are not.
you know, and, and even recently in watching some of the hearings on the impeachment of Trump, oh, thank God, right? I recognize that our government is almost entirely white. The professionals that work for our government are almost entirely white. And it, you know, here are these people that sit at the very highest levels of power in the United States, and there's little or no minority representation. And the positions that are filled at those high levels are never filled with people of color, which is very strange to me. Um, and that, but then that reinforces institutional racism, even at our U.S. Capitol. <clears throat> our very highest levels of government, people of color are consistently excluded. Um, and so it's just mind-boggling. But anyway, talking about statistics, and we're talking about the American narrative and what made America great. You know, there are... As of 2018, this U.S. Census reports that there are roughly 60 million Hispanic people living in the United States. We make up almost 20% of the overall population of this nation. That's, that's pretty striking. Um, but... We, you don't hear about us. We're not included in anything. Um, you know, and considering there are 327 million people in the United States and 60 million of those people are Latinos, it's just, uh, it's just crazy. So let's look at the U.S. population by race. Let's look at the U.S. Uh, uh, census race uh, statistics. So I'm looking at, let's see if we can get into the American Fact Finder and kind of check out the numbers. Um, it's just, it's just crazy. The United States, uh, for claiming to be the land of the free and for claiming to, you know, uh, to be such a, a location of, you know, in a government that is focused on freedom, it really seems that people of color have been dismissed so consistently that it is just, uh, it's just sad. So I'm looking at, this is some old census data. It looks like 70%, 72% of the overall um, population in the United States is white. And it's saying that's, you know, almost 20% Hispanic, and then black or African American after that, and then Asian, then Native American, um, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders, and then other. And so... When I look at that, I think, okay, well, we do have a predominant race in the United States, and great. But it doesn't mean that they should be the only people with opportunity. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Um, I work in the nonprofit field. I'm a grant writer. I just started my own grant writing business, and I've been very fortunate to pick up five contracts fairly quickly. 
Um, but what I recognized is that as a contractor picking up contracts and typically dealing with white executive directors um, with nonprofits that, homo- that have almost entirely white board of directors, but every one of these programs are serving people of color as their predominant population. And I think, well, how do all these white people know what these little brown people need? How do they know what's best for me? How do they know what's best for you? They don't. They use census data and they do all this research and they think they know so much. Well, guess what? If you're not part of my culture, if you're not part of you know, the way that I grew up, you have no understanding of who I am. You have no understanding of how to help me either. And so I think it's a complete and total injustice when I see, you know, nonprofit organizations, usually headed by a white woman and usually an entire white board of directors providing programs for all these little brown people. I They just missed the mark. I had one organization where writing for a, uh, uh, a foundation grant and they wanted to know the racial breakup of the board of directors and how it related to the population served. Well, uh, you know, 98% <clears throat> people of color and uh, who live in poverty um, being served by an all-white board with people who had never, ever in their lives ever experienced poverty. And we're not people of color. And so I'm like, okay, you've never experienced poverty. You have, you are not a member of the population that's being served. So you have no understanding of our cultural values or what our ethics are or what motivates us. And you've never lived in poverty in your life. But you're going to sit here and tell, you're going to sit here and tell little brown people who live in poverty how to change their lives and live the American dream. That's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Um, And I I just don't understand it, but it's the world I live in, especially in Washington State. In Washington State, I've found that I have experienced more racism in in Washington State here in the Pacific Northwest than I have in any other state I've ever lived in. And I've probably lived in about 20 different states. Um, all the way from North Carolina here. And I would say Washington State was more racist than Idaho. And in Idaho, when I lived in Idaho, it was crazy. I took my kids to a winter fest in Coeur d'Alene, and one of the sponsors was the Ku Klux Klan. And so um, at least they're blatant about it in Washington State. They're pretty passive-aggressive, but the racism is uh, abundantly clear. Anyway... Let's go back to some of these other uh, moments in history that are completely muffled um, when talking about what makes America great. Um, Absolutely Mendes versus Westminster because it laid the foundation for Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, Another would be, you know, just the racism toward Latino people. Here's a story about Felix uh, Longoria. He was killed in the Philippines in World War II. And when his body was returned to Three Rivers, Texas, uh, 
The funeral director forbid the family to use the chapel because they didn't want to upset their white patrons. Here is a person who gave all for their country to come home and have no place to, to rest his, you know, his body so that his family could mourn and, you know, complete that burial process. And so the GI Forum, a civil rights organization led by Hector Garcia, organized a campaign that caught the attention of then U.S. Senator Lyndon Johnson. And he arranged for Longoria to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. You you know, it's uh, stories like this that just... It just makes me sad. You know, my grandfather, Deles Ford Chavez, he died in World War II. He gave all for this country. But yet, when I see, you know, I see anything on an American television network regarding our military, I certainly don't see people of color. I see the white male hero returning from war. Never do I see the Mexicanos that have gone and fought for this country they also hold dear. Just pretty sad to me. You know, the men in my family have all served in the U.S. Marine Corps. From my grandfather to my father to my brother. My father is a Vietnam War vet. (coughs) Served. He did two tours in Vietnam. Um, my brother Alvin is a Desert Storm vet. He did multiple tours in uh, Desert, Desert Storm and was part of uh, multiple operations um, during that whole crisis in the 90s. Uh, and then, of course, my grandfather, who died in World War II. I, you know, we have a long history of serving in our in our military services. Right now, my little niece, Adriana, she is in the U.S. Air Force and has been for several years now. But, do you ever, on a, on a U.S. television network, ever see uh, a person of color other than somebody who is, uh, you know, that black and white dynamic coming home? Never! Never. The American narrative is white everything. It's time we change that. How about a little race and social justice? Right? So it just makes me sad when we talk about Felix uh, Longoria. You know, he gave all for his country. And Three Rivers, Texas couldn't find a spot to lay his body for his family to grieve because white people wouldn't like it blows my mind you know when you talk about racism in america you hear the black struggle right and our black brothers and sisters have gone through a lot and they have come a very long way but i think it's time people learn of the struggle that latinos have gone through too you know my parents were talking one time and my you know my parents were in their 30s uh when civil rights came to the united states and so they experienced a significant amount of racism um, over the years, my mom had went to visit her sister in Chicago, um, and she relayed a story 
where my mom, my dad, my older brother, my older sister were not allowed to rent a room at a couple of different motels because, well, my dad is a dark Mexicano. He's very dark. He's as dark as some of our black brothers and sisters. And my mom, she's a brown Mexicana, right? And so anyway, they they ended up sleeping in their car halfway to Chicago because they couldn't rent a room in any of these white establishments. That's my own mother, my own father, my own siblings experiencing extreme racism in this land, supposedly land of the free. It's just, it's just amazing to me that 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 happened and yet the story is never told right it's kind of cherry-picked everybody oh what about the you know um workers rights and julio cesar chavez and you know in california well california is actually there has more hispanic people in california than white people in california you know but does anybody even know who established los angeles white people that established Los Angeles? No. It was founded in 1781 by a group of Spaniards and Afro-Latinos. Indigenous people and mestizos. They set out from the colonial era uh, Mexico, traveled to California and founded the city of Los Angeles. But do you ever hear that story? No, you talk about, you talk about California or Los Angeles. You hear about this Oh, it's just uh, this uh, growing metropolis that is so uh, IT-based. And, you know, you know what grew California? The Mexicanos in the fields bringing fruits and vegetables to our tables every day. And you know who did that? We did. Wasn't this white uh, metropolitan you know, growing and software development and all this IT. What grew it were Mexicanos that saw a land rich, rich in multiple ways with very rich soil and went to feed America. But do you ever hear that story? Never. I've never heard it. And so when I was researching for this podcast, I was kind of blown away. I was like, oh, wow. You know, another thing, too, is, you know, when I'm watching the impeachment um, hearings, I'm, you know, the majority of representatives and senators in, in Congress are white. And, you know, and then I think, well, how many Hispanics have ever served in Senate? It's probably only a small handful, right? And then I got to thinking, well, who was the first? Who was the first? The first Hispanic U.S. Senator was Octaviano Larrazolo of New Mexico. Octaviano, Octaviano, hold on, let's see. Octaviano Larrazolo of New Mexico. First Hispanic elected U.S. Senator, uh, U.S. Senator, U.S. Senator. Have I ever heard that in my life? No, I had to go and research it and look it up. Because it's a story that's never been told to me. It's not part of the white American fabric and American narrative. 
And I wonder why people of color are consistently removed from the American narrative. It blows my mind. But still, there was a first, and now we know, was Octaviano of New Mexico. Let's see. Let's see what else. Well, you know, when you do hear of, you know, Hispanics in history, you usually hear of violence or um, this degrading of, uh, you know, Hispanics at this lower moral capacity. You always hear of the Zoot Suit riots in California. Ooh, because uh, Chicanos um, and sailors got to fight. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm... So they can talk about us, um, you know, being violent. And when we were responding to abuse, when we were responding to violence, because we, you know, put up our, put up our hands and fought back to the violence that was being thrust upon us. That whole story of the Zoot Suit Riots, uh, as told by white American uh, news uh, stations, was you know, hear these brown, you know, Latino, Mexican people fighting these white people in California. We never, nobody ever talked about, you know, the, what the abuses and the violence that was being thrust on these people and that it was simply a response. Mexicanos don't go out there and start fighting everybody for no goddamn reason. They were responding to the violence that was thrust upon them. By not only by U.S. white sailors in the area, that's what started that. White sailors were beating up and being violent to the Mexicanos who wore the baggy zoot suits, right? But do you ever hear in, in the American story of the zoot suit riots of these white sailors that were, you know, thrusting violence on these Chicanos and beating them up for no reason? That's a hate crime. That's a hate crime. But no, you you never hear about that. All you hear about is the violent Mexican-Latino response, right? Hey, and you know what? Hey, that, uh, you know, I think the term uh, pachucos and all that came out of that. Um, and I'm like, hey, man, uh, my brothers responded uh, in, you know, in there's nothing wrong with that. If somebody is thrusting violence on you, you have to protect you and your own, and you have to protect your family. And that's what these Mexicanos did. But I think that the white American narrative was uh, had to be changed because you can't go around talking about white sailors committing hate crimes toward brown people. And, of course, the story is always... Uh, twisted and and the brown person is always made to be the bad uh, the or the evil in any situation right especially when you have white reporters and the white American media involved in telling a story so you know you know other pieces of history too have you ever thought you thought back and you know you see all these stories about the Civil War blah, 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 right I'm like, well, where are the Mexicanos? We were here. 
We've been part of this country before white people ever came here. Ever. So why where where is our story? We hear about the you know the um the damn Mayflower coming over with these white people who came over here to kill all these Indians, right? But what about and when we hear the story of the Spaniards, but you know, and Christopher Columbus coming to enslave and Christianize Indians, right? But where's the story from there? What happened between Christopher Columbus coming to the United States and and pretty much settling the Americas up to the time of the Civil War? And during the Civil War, where were Mexicanos during the Civil War? I've never heard a story in my whole damn life about the role Mexicanos played. I bet you goddamn well the Mexicanos were in there side by side with their black brothers and sisters. Because they knew oppression from these white demons, right? Yes, but can you imagine life back then, you know? Yeah, just, you know... You know, just being a person of color, you can, somebody can just kill you and, you know, a white person can just kill you and it's okay because you're a person of color and not considered human. You know, even during the civil rights, you know, my cases were fought, you know, were, you know, for uh, white men killing black men and people of color. You know how many cases there are in New Mexico and Texas history of white men killing Latinos and nothing of it why even charge a white man if he killed a Latino especially in the 50s and 60s what are we ranked at the level of dogs that our families are not allowed restitution for what happened to us man some heavy shit but anyway anyway you know let's turn a positive corner Positive corner is now, you know, Mexicanos have every right that any other individual does. The only thing is that our history has been completely stolen from us. Our history has been completely muffled in the narrative of the American story. Our history has been completely denied us. And our glory has been denied us. I want to hear those. I want to hear the stories of Mexicanos you know, fighting in the Civil War and the strides they took to help create this democracy. Don't you? I want to know the, you know, the strides that Mexicanos made to help America be what it is today. Right? You know, even when you're thinking about legislation and things that came to pass that made uh, equality really happen, um, yeah, you know, you hear about Julio Cesar Chavez and, you know, La civil, you know, Latino civil rights movements, but have you ever heard of, um, the Delano grape picker strike of 1965? That strike was from 1965 to 1970. And what it was, was a group of Filipino and Latino farm workers who joined in a strike to boycott grapes in the Delano area California to to protest poor conditions 
You know, the five-year campaign ultimately succeeded in forcing the great producers to sign union contracts. Why is it important? This victory, the Delano Great Picker Strike, set the foundation for the United Farm Workers uh, Union led by Cesar Chavez. If this had not set the precedent, Julio Cesar Chavez would have had to, but he didn't. He had precedent to help him in his fight. And that started with the Delano Great Picker Strike of 1965, and nobody's probably ever heard of that. Well, of course not. You can't hear about brown people winning against the white nation, right? It's kind of crazy to me, but it's the world we live in, I guess. So, but yeah, so today I just wanted to talk about where we're missing from history. It just, uh, it just kind of blows my mind. Our stories are not told, you know, you know, when we're talking about, um, in Los Angeles and talking about the riots in 1970. There's a story of a journalist, uh, Ruben Salazar, where a white officer went into the bar that he was drinking a beer at and pointed a tear gas gun directly at him and shot it and killed him. He's a prominent journalist. They're having a beer. This white officer came in and committed murder. Why? Because he's Mexican-American. Well, probably the only brown person in the room. But do you ever hear his story? Have you ever heard his story? Probably not. And But his story is important because it tells the story of complete and total injustice committed against the Chicano community but you wouldn't know because it's not widely told right pretty sad um what about the mexican-american studies that were banned in arizona so what happened I got this off of a news channel. This is cool. Following allegations that an experimental Mexican-American studies curriculum in Tucson, Arizona, um, uh, politicized students, Republican politicians passed legislation to shut it down. Under pressure from state officials, the local Board of Education dismantled the program, credited by independent researchers with boosting student achievement and fostering critical thinking skills. A lawsuit challenging the legislation has been has been appealed to the Ninth U.S. Um, Circuit Court of Appeals. Why is why does it matter? There are those in this country who feel so threatened by la, our Hispanic Latino population that they refuse to let us learn our history. Why can we not have an, a Mexican American Studies curriculum at our universities? Why? I mean, this was in Arizona, of course. It's uh, Arizona over the years has been known to be, ex- their legislators are extremely racist, especially toward Mexicanos because they feel that, you know, it's immigration issues and Mexicanos coming to this country 